Welcome back to the Hikmah Collective Podcast. I'm Erica Magalak, and today we're speaking with Dr. Nadia Sasso. Dr. Nadia Marie Sasso is a high-powered creative cultural producer and unconventional scholar based in Los Angeles. Her expertise is developing engaging creative content and driving strategy across various platforms and media. Nadia has 10 years of relevant professional experience with documented success in the areas of social innovation, strategic partnerships, and new media. Her portfolio proves that she is deeply invested and interested in media as a storytelling tool to not only engage and inspire audiences, but also to connect people around the world with stories they will love. She advocates for changing the way relationships are built, fostered, and established across various industries, both in the diaspora and on the African continent. Nadia was the equity consultant for our summer 2021 pilot course, Entrepreneurship for PhDs, which also means that she was one of the very first consultants that I had ever worked with in my professional life. And actually, I learned a lot from her, not only about reframing the way that I thought about access and inclusion in the course, but also the way that I thought about myself and how I comported myself as a business owner. Um, And I'm really glad that we had the opportunity to chat with her about the path that she took to becoming a business owner, because I think that her approach to entrepreneurship comes from such a place of strength and such a celebration of the value that we bring to the world and the importance of prioritizing your mental health and your personal life and your passion in the way that you approach your work. Um, Nadia also talks about, as you'll hear, um, the ways that we can defy categorization by other people and self-determine who we want to be and what we want to bring to the world. Uh, So we hope you enjoy this conversation with Nadia. Well, welcome back, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Uh, My name is Erica Makalak with HICMA, and I'm here with Nadia Sasso, uh, who is the equity consultant for this program and also an entrepreneur in her own right. So as a PhD in Africana Studies and an entrepreneur, Nadia creates content to engage millennials of the African diaspora. She has also leveraged her background in diversity, marketing, communications, and new media across notable stages. Uh, Thank you, Nadia, for being here. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. Uh, Nadia, it's been wonderful to work with you throughout the development of this program. You've really been here um, from the early stages, and I have appreciated so many different facets of your experience. But today, I really want to dig into your work and your experience and better understand how you came to be the business owners that you are today. So could you tell us a little bit about maybe your educational history first? What did you study as an undergrad? So my educational history started with Bucknell University, where I studied English and sociology with a concentration in media and culture. And for me, when I first got to Bucknell, I really thought that I was going to be an international politics major and just really work for the UN and really just change the world in that way. But then after I started getting my grades the first couple semesters, I was like, oh, that's not working out too well. <laughs> so, so I had to pivot. I actually met a great mentor 
who told me to major in English. I was looking at him a little crazy because I do come from the Washington, D.C. area and I spoke with a really, really deep D.C. twang. I mean, some people might call it Ebonics or African-American vernacular English, but I say that nonetheless to say that I, you know, I really didn't feel like I had what it takes to be an English major, Um, but I end up graduating with, you know, with great grades. I actually ended up loving it. And I think it was because they had just implemented a variety of courses under the English department that really spoke to who I was as a Black woman or the culture that I come from with a lot of things focusing on like media, African-American history and Africana, um, the African diaspora in general. And then with sociology, it was just a great, you know, combination and I just got to have fun with it. And so that made my experience academically worthwhile at Bucknell. And then I went on to, I took a year off, a year or two off. I moved to LA. I worked for Disney Consumer Products and Nielsen and Media Marketing Analytics. Uh, after that time, I then went, I actually moved back to the East Coast and went to grad school because my mom started getting sick. I needed to be closer to home. So I went to Lehigh University where I did a master's in American studies with a focus again on the African um, diaspora experience within the American context. And I also did a a certification in documentary film. And within those two programs, I was able to develop my thesis, which was a documentary on Am I Too African to Be American to American to Be African? And it featured Issa Rae. Um, And that was a really, really fun time. And that's where my entrepreneurial Well, I always had the entrepreneur spirit, given my dynamic and growing up with my grandmother and my godmother. However, that's when it really intersected with academia, Mm -hmm. because I ended up um, right after that, went to Cornell University. I printed out DVDs. I sold DVDs. I went on a college tour with the film. And I really, you know, it was a business. So So when you say entrepreneurial spirit, what does that mean? What are the what are the skills or competencies you're thinking of there? So entrepreneurial spirit, it's literally taking, um, you know, really, uh, really just, I guess, hustling, but also turning something into a business, right? That people don't really think you would need business skills for, or you would, um, you know, going on this business venture that's not necessarily a big, a, a big, massive company, in my opinion. So when I say I always had this entrepreneurial spirit, you know, from elementary school, I would sell candy. Then in middle school, I upgraded to selling earrings and jewelry and accessories from my locker, which I don't even know if that was, I was supposed to be doing that, but <laughs> that's neither here nor there. <laughs> and then, you know, doing hair and being booked all weekend because, you know, I just wanted to really get out of my parents' hair and not really feel like they had to be So, you know, take some responsibility off of them. So I was always doing something. And then, again, here in college and doing tutoring, whatever the case may be. But then I felt like in grad school, it was always those things definitely made money and I was able to survive. But when I, you know, was able to do the thesis and the film and different things, that was on a whole nother level because that's when I started in 2014, registered my first business. Or was it 2012? Around then, between 2012 and 2014, registering my first business, what does the EIN number look like? How do you file business taxes? All those different things. Mm-hmm. So you start selling these DVDs. You start turning your actual scholarship from your master's into a hustle. 
Um, how does that lead you to your PhD? So it led to my PhD because I actually continued. I actually turned in the rough cut of my documentary in Lehigh. So it stopped there. So then I was like, well, I still have to finish a final version of it. So I finished that in my first year at Cornell University. Hmm. And then my dissertation Actually, I was going on tour and I was really, I thought my dissertation was going to be making a part two of this film and doing another film, but it didn't really work out that way. So I was taking a lot of anthro classes in the anthropology department. Mm -hmm. And I was finding when I released the film at Cornell and I was on, I went on tour while I was at Cornell, I, I started in this anthro course being in the field in a different, I started looking at tours, the field. And so I started analyzing the reactions to the film, film reception, what people were saying on social media, and then also what it was like when I went to do my field research in Sierra Leone. And then this film just became a um, an impetus or kind of segue into my diss as well. Huh. So your research was actually actually kind of a critical look at the reception of your own master's thesis? Yeah, that was about a chapter or two. And then I had another chapter on, so my dissertation was very (laughs) non-traditional. It was very mixed as well in the format it was written. So at the first chapter, there was a chapter on family as a unit or structure. And what does that mean when you talk about identity for first and second gen? Then there was a chapter on audience reception and including the social media and actually what was happening in the audience. Then I had a chapter on uh, doing field research in Sierra Leone and what did that look like and the struggles that I had with trying to fit, you know, make my work seem more seemingly academic, but it, you know, just wasn't working out that way. (laughs) You -hmm. know, the struggle of doing that and imposter, you know, and all the different identities that impact that and unpacking that whole situation. And then I had a chapter on fashion and what does that say about your identity And Mm -hmm. how that all came together was just how the thread was, how identity and how people see you or you see yourself and the community really impacts the work that you're doing and, uh, you know, how you're perceived, if that makes sense. That's amazing. Did you face any challenges sort of selling that as a dissertation to your committee, to the administrators at your school? I did, but I I ended up finding a chair who was just really supportive. And she actually, and I found someone, and then I found two others outside of my department who spoke to the anthro side, another one who spoke to um, the fashion side, another one who spoke to the larger African diaspora. And once I had the great, that great team, it, it got a lot easier. But before it was hard to even figure out who was going to be on my committee. And mm. with what I was doing made sense. <laughs> mm-hmm. And how, what was the process like of finding those people? What would you recommend to other people who are trying to think a little bit more outside the box or do something a little bit different with their research? How did you find the people that you wanted to work with? In the beginning, I was struggling because what sounded you know, like the individuals that would be a great fit for me personality wise and um, in other nuances, it just didn't work out. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I had to go back to the drawing board and I realized that I'm, you know, I am my worst critic. So, and I'm already hard on myself. So 
I realized that I wanted people who knew how to encourage me and motivate me without beating me up, if that makes sense, or making me feel crazy or like I should know things already Mm -hmm. or stupid. So I really, first I went for how people uh, brought the best out of me. So the classes, the teachers that I kind of worked well with or that I felt like it was effortlessly for me to get their work done because they, and I was excelling with them. Those are the type of people that probably need to be on my committee. And then I looked at what I was working on and how it could relate to them. And then I went from there. Hmm. But I put my mental health first in choosing my committee because I wasn't really mentally in the best place while in my um, completing my dissertation. Mm, do you want to talk about that more? Um, I would say that I wasn't mentally in my best place because that was my first really deep, deep dive with depression and anxiety. And I think that was a combination of a few things um, personal with my mom being sick, um, also being in Ithaca and not really understanding that seasonal affect disorder is really real or being in dark places and, you know, not having much access to the sun to just feeling like I was also being, you know, academically hazed or feeling like I had to prove myself to everyone and everyone having anxiety about performing well at this predominantly, you know, white and Ivy League institution. And so I had to kind of just let all of that go and redesign what that space would be like for me and who I wanted to build in that space with Mm -hmm. to protect myself Mm -hmm. and my sanity. Yeah, that resonates with me. That makes a lot of sense. It's sometimes you see people on paper who you think scholarship wise, if you're looking at our CVs, we we should be the ones who are in the room together. We should be the ones, but sometimes it's the people who are thinking on the same creative wavelength or have the Mm -hmm. same kind of humanity wavelength that are the Mm -hmm. ones that really enable you to be your best self and your best scholar. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So uh, can I ask you as a woman of color, what was it like to create space for yourself in Ithaca? Mm, it It was hard and it almost was tiring to be very honest, especially coming from, other predominantly white institutions where you constantly have to do that. So I think at this point, I'm not going to lie at Cornell, I was pretty much over it. (laughs) I don't think I was as engaging as I was in my previous two institutions, to be very honest. I kind of just kind of got my work done. And I also was a parent, so I didn't really have that extracurricular time that I used to to create those spaces. But I did create, I did work on creating genuine friendships where we could support each other in whatever way we could. So I have two really close friends that developed at Cornell. And to this day, we still support each other and cheer each other on. And I would say a handful, actually, and just kind of building a very close-knit community I would say what ended up saving me a little bit, I did, I was a graduate RA and while the students weren't the same age as me or we weren't necessarily friends, I did try to create a space for the students to kind of explore things, you know, the general population to explore things that they wouldn't normally get to see or that's foreign to them, but also for the students of color, making sure that they always felt like they could confide in me or they can come and get support or they could come get a home cooked meal or they could just feel good about themselves while they were there because there was somebody 
you know, within that living environment that look like them. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. I mean, you had so much going on on your own and, and the PhD for anyone is already just hard, not to mention also having a family. So taking ownership of that other piece for other people, do you find that energizing or exhausting or both? I think it's a little bit of both. I wouldn't say it wasn't. So also I'm learning now at this age that it's a part of who I am because of the community that I come from. I come from a culture where it's less about you as an individual and more about the community. And so it becomes exhausting when I you don't take care of yourself and when you're not finding balance within that. So there's a fine line and that has always been a struggle for me. But I was socialized to think about my community first at all times. So it was also a little bit energizing in a way, but also I think what kept me energized was the fact that I was once in their place and I'm just doing what I wish somebody would have done for me. And I also believe that you bless others, you your life becomes easier and you get more blessings in return. Like everything isn't about like money and, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So that's a really interesting note to pivot on. Tell me about how this community first mindset and the acknowledgement that everything isn't about money, but also the acknowledgement that, you know, people got to make a living. How does that translate to your business now? So the community first mindset translates into my business now because I have a team of about six or seven people. It's more about how we work well as a team and how, you know, there is some type of mentorship and growth for everyone and that everyone's voice is being heard. So really, you know, making everyone feel like they belong and they deserve to be in the room. And I think that works because it builds more confidence, whether you're an undergraduate or graduate student or you're, you know, already set in your career, you kind of feel like there's a place for you, for you to perform and do your best work, which in turn, I think if everyone feels good about themselves and they come to work as their whole selves, then there is, they're going to do great work and the revenue will be easy. Hmm. And so are there takeaways from your experience working within other people's systems that have enabled you to build your system better? Yeah, there are takeaways. I would say, you know, seeing your employees, celebrating them, you know, showing them that you appreciate them. That's something that I really try to take in and also really understanding who they are and how they're doing. So I try to implement that for sh- I try to bring the human humanist perspective to my work environment and my company for sure. Hmm. In the sense of seeing people or in other senses as well? Um, in the sense of seeing people and also, you know, just giving them that room to give grace, but also not If you're sick or you're not feeling well, yeah, we may need to get certain things done, but it's better you take the time off and come back when you feel good. Or if you're having a, you know, a bad day, then let's figure out another solution or, you know, doing something else. Not saying that we're going to be over accommodating every day, but really just making sure that that's at the forefront. So that way we can, um, we can get the most things done. It sounds like you really try to create an environment where every single person on your team can be their whole self at work. That's what I'm hearing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's great. Um, so let's talk about the work itself, Nadia. What services do you offer? 
So I offer production services. So whether that's from producing to directing um, curated creative projects, and that can range from film to a photo shoot to a commercial. And, um, and a lot of the content that I like to work on is content that, you know, A, has a storytelling element, but B, I love it even more if it has a cultural element to it as well. I also do like writing as well as research uh, for different entities um, and writing consulting and research consulting as well. And uh, I feel like I'm missing a couple of things, but I essentially do a lot. (laughs) Okay, cool. So without breaking any client privacy, can you give us examples of the kinds of projects that you work on? Hmm. Well, I guess I can talk about projects that I'm working on and that I'm developing that'll come out this year. I'll do that instead, um, just because I don't know what I'll be breaking. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So for me, I'll be coming out with a podcast with a colleague of mine that should be dropping next month. um, And it's Unboxing Layers of Blackness. I'm also coming out with an app, another partner of mine, Blader Box, which is Black Create. Blader stands for Black Creator. And it's an app Mm. where you can discover Black creatives all over. So Mm. in the process of developing that, and that should be released, a software launch will come Juneteenth, I believe, um, if all goes well. And so those are the type of things um, that I have just been working on. And it's producing a lot of personal creative content, but again, working with different brands on that as well. Mm Mm-hmm. And how does your experience from your scholarly work translate into the services that you offer? How much overlap is there? Um, There's actually a ton of overlap because, again, I like to do a lot of creative stuff, but also cultural, um, culturally relevant topics. And so, for example, working with PBS, um, I provide them a lot of content consulting and research advice when they're for the web series Say It Loud, which is about... Um, Black history and a way to make it more fun and interesting for a younger generation. And so that is me bringing in the creative as well as the academic side, making sure facts and content is all accurate. Nice. Nice. So what would you recommend to you on the first day of your PhD or even when you started thinking about applying for a PhD? What advice would you give yourself looking back? (laughs) Well, funny enough, I realized I actually didn't even want to do a PhD. <laughs> I was actually, I had a plan of moving to Sierra Leone. I was actually already there, but then Ebola hit and my parents were freaking out. And then they were like, if I don't come home, they're going to send the U.S. Embassy to take me back. <laughs> so my backup plan was, okay, if that didn't work, my backup plan was the PhD. So that's how I ended up doing the PhD because it was a backup plan. <sighs> And what would I say to my first myself that I wish I said was put your mental health first at all times hmm. and um, and reminding myself that everybody's journey is different because you get into a space where you start collecting everyone's anxiety and what they think you should be doing and how you should be doing it. And the reality is you only know what works for you. Mm-hmm. And so building your own business, has it been easier to put your mental health first? Mm, It's been easier in that I'm doing what I'm passionate about. So that's stimulating in a way, you know, it's been a little bit harder in a way because it is your business. So you're kind of now responsible for others and you don't want to 
you know, let them down. So it's about finding balance, but it isn't as draining because you're doing what you're passionate about. Mm-hmm. One final piece of advice I would love to know for, know your take on is how do you ask for what you deserve? Mm-hmm. I think you ask for what you deserve. Well, how I ask for what I deserve, I can speak on myself. I'm always constantly reevaluating I mentioned before, what do I bring to the table? What do I have to offer? And then I also, when it comes to the more business and practical side, that's more theoretical, I'm looking at what do I need to survive? How much do I need to make from a yearly, quarterly, monthly, weekly, daily basis in order to, you know, live a lifestyle that takes care of myself and those that I'm responsible for? And so once I merge all of that together, that really is what kind of now you know what you're worth. Now you know what to ask for. And now you know how to kind of settle your your ask when working with others. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's more details and more nuances to that. But I would say the oversimplified answer is that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, any final advice for for our listeners? Any Anything you think we haven't covered here that you really want to make sure gets said? I would say that don't be, you know, don't be afraid to take risks because success comes from risk and from failure. Like don't fear either either and to always, you know, go after what it is that you want. And lastly, I know that a lot of times, you know, we're socialized to think that we can only do one thing or we should only just check one box. But you can be all that you can be, and it can still work out in your favor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. I, I think that that riskiness is often hard for PhDs to think through. But at the same time, like as a scholar, there are lots of risks that you're taking all the time. So thank you, Nadia. Thank you for your time and for all of your insights. I'm really, I'm really grateful that you could be here with us. This is this is wonderful. Um, appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hikma Collective podcast. I'm your host, Erica Makalak, writer, medievalist, and founder of Hikma. The production of this episode was led by our fearless creative director, Sophia Van Hees, in collaboration with Nicole Markland, Dashara Green, Eufemia Baldassare, and Matthew Tomkinson. Matthew composed the original music you hear now in his capacity as the 2022 Hikma Artist in Residence. This podcast has been made possible with generous support from Innovate BC, Tech Nation, and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. You can find show notes, links, and transcripts at www.hikma.studio slash podcast. Hikma is situated on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Hunkamedum-speaking Musqueam people. We are grateful to be here and to share this space with you. Our speakers, team members, and listeners are based all over the world, and wherever you're listening, we encourage you to learn more about whose lands you're on.